0: You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat.
1: Kev Kied here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. We're here to help. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Our job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now, or maybe in an hour. You're about to hear the recording of a live call with an expert panel, and you're more than welcome to join these live calls. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. Episode 4 covers board and strategy. We're asking what strategic planning looks like now and whether it's completely overwhelmed by contingency planning and business continuity. And we spend a fair bit of time talking through what it means to be a nonprofit board member right now and how to think about board recruitment, onboarding, engagement, and succession planning. Oh, and we had a couple of challenges with the audio quality, so if you hear any garbling, that's probably us, not you, do not adjust your set. All that, over the next hour. Okay, welcome everyone to Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is episode four on board and strategy, and I am joined by a very esteemed panel stretching across uh, the United States, and I'll give them each an opportunity to introduce themselves. I'm going to start with Leslie Spethman.
2: Hi, I'm
3: Leslie Spethman. I'm uh, out of Omaha, Nebraska, and um, I've been uh, in the nonprofit world for um, Gosh, I'm 10 years now, and I've served in several different roles and also on boards and um, consulting. I primarily focus on strategic planning and board development.
1: Excellent. Okay, Benita Stanley from Atlanta.
4: Hello, my name's Benita. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm happy to be here with you today and dialogue with you all. I run a consulting practice that specializes in organizational development for nonprofits, I'm here and in Africa. It's mostly African-American nonprofits and my background is in civil rights, um, racial justice. I worked with the American Civil Liberties Union for a number of years and been in the nonprofit space for 25 years.
1: Well, thanks for joining us and Julie Clark.
5: Hi everybody. I'm Julie Clark and I lead the nonprofit team at Business Volunteers Unlimited here in Northeast Ohio. We're a nonprofit that serves the business community and the nonprofit sector, working with about 800 different nonprofits a year. And I spend my time doing training and consulting with nonprofits related to board development, uh, succession planning, strategic planning, and organizational assessments. Happy to be here.
1: Thanks, and uh, Gregory Scott.
6: Well, good morning. Uh, Well, good afternoon for some of you, but good morning for for us on the the West Coast. Um, Again, my name is Gregory Scott. I am the president and CEO for Community Action Partnership of Orange County. Um, we are part of a national network of what we call community action agencies across the country. It's about 1,000 community action agencies across the country born out of the war on poverty um, during Lyndon Johnson's presidency. And the response to the war on poverty was community action. So our mission is really focused on helping families um, individuals um, and communities who are dealing with poverty. So we run a major food bank dealing with food insecurity. We do financial empowerment. We're doing a host of, of various programs I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with poverty um, in the community. And then I also do executive coaching as well.
1: That's great. So that's our panel. The uh, order of business today is, we'll go through a series of questions. We'll have an opportunity for some direct Q&A. Uh, Folks online should have uh, no hesitation of in asking questions in the chat. We can have a side uh, conversation going on in the chat. Feel free to contribute and the panelists can contribute too. Feel free to ask specific questions or to share specific circumstances from uh, your own situation uh, if you're able to. Now, I see also we are getting uh, Earl Pike in who's, I'd uh, like to come to our panel. So, Earl, as soon as your audio connects, I'm going to give you an opportunity also to uh, uh, introduce yourself. There he is. Uh, welcome, Earl Pike. Hey,
7: good to see you. Good to see everybody. Hi, I'm Earl Pike. I'm from a place called the University Settlement.
1: Okay. So uh, the first question that we're going to have is, and I'm going to ask uh, Julie to to start it in her in her role in, in coordinating with lots of nonprofits, is, in this current climate, what does strategic planning even look like? And do we have examples where boards have shifted their initiation of a strategic plan process because of having to do it virtually or remote and the away days aren't possible? So what does it look like and how should boards be thinking about conducting a strategic plan process? Julie, if you want to kick off that question for us today?
5: Sure. Uh, so, I think it's different for every organization, but the pri- primary need is to be thinking about business continuity and scenario planning. We can't be thinking three to five years down the road when we're worrying about how are we going to make payroll next month or what's going to be happening with our funders. Uh, so. And we've certainly seen, you know, we we do a lot of strategic planning here in Northeast Ohio, and we've heard from organizations who were ready to start with them and they've kind of put a pause on it, maybe because they're serving basic vital needs like Earl's organization or um, because they don't want to engage in a virtual process. So that's fine to put a pause on strategic planning, but you still need to be doing some of that work. You're looking at financial forecasting. You're looking at scenario plans.
1: So instead of taking that longer term, say three to five year horizon that we often take with strategic planning, it's much more immediate uh, continuity planning instead. So it's still a planning exercise, but but with a different focus.
5: Right. You're looking at, you know, what if our projections are off 20%, 40%, 60% versus, where do we want to be in five years?
1: Right, and Gregory, are you seeing that in in uh,
6: South uh, Southern California as well? Yeah, I, I you know, I when it, when it comes to strategic planning, my my perspective may be a, a little bit different. Um, and and in that strategic planning is a process, not an event. And some people think that uh, we go through this process and we did the strategic plan and we're done. Um, but but for me even in this environment, I think you still have to be thinking long-term. And so you have to think long and deep about your strategies, about you know, where you're trying to go, where you're trying to push your organization. Um, so innovation still has to be part of, even in a crisis, you still got to be innovative. You still, there, there's opportunities in a crisis. And so your, your plan, and if your plan does not have risk mitigation, um, so that when something like this happens, that this contingency plan, that you know what to do, Um, then I think your plan is incomplete. For me, I think about strategic plan um, a decade long. Like we're have, we doing a 10-year strategic plan. Sounds crazy, I get it. But we're thinking about where do we want to be in 10 years? What kind of impact we want to have in 10 years? And then we back into it. It's fluid. Um, So we're constantly, you know, it's it's a fluid document. And when the environment changes or funding changes, those things are going to happen. Our our basic strategies though, we still want to get rid of food insecurity. There's certain things that we still that's no matter what happens in the environment, we still wanna do. Our method may change, but that major strategy does not change. And does that include
1: Oh oh, sorry, go ahead.
6: No, I I was just gonna I was just gonna reiterate what I said. I think about strategic plan from a long-term perspective, impact we wanna have. And even in this, you still gotta be innovative. Think about payroll, but you also think you gotta think about five years, 10 years from now.
1: And so in that, in that five, 10 year long horizon, are you still provide, having some attention to the more immediate business continuity planning?
6: Or do you see those as two separate pieces? No, I think you're, you're still doing both. Like right now, COVID-19 hit, nobody knew what was gonna happen. We, we, we transition most of our services towards food. And we're, so we, we have a 4,000 increase in people who need food. So a lot of our other services, shifted towards that. And it's still part of our plan. We just found other ways to continue our process. Um, but when this crisis hit, we, we made a shift, but it's still in line with our overall strategic plan.
1: I see. Okay. So Leslie, what, what have you been grappling with, with on behalf of your clients and the question they've been asking about how they start or conduct their strategic plans? Or as Julie said, they've shifted to perhaps continuity planning.
3: Yeah. And actually um, I'm vice chair of a board right now that we had uh, started a strategic planning process and I'm leading our strategic planning task force for that board. So that's not really in my consulting role, but um, you know, what we've decided is that really it needs to be put off um, till a little bit later in the year for our organization is what Mm -hmm. made the most sense. So, I mean, I think really I don't have a whole lot to add to what the others have said other than I think it just has to be the right time. And, the advice that I always give my clients is that it has to be the right time for strategic planning. And if it isn't, and if everyone's not on board and engaged that um, sometimes I think it can be a waste of resources. So I do think it's important to make sure that it is the right time for your organization.
1: And w- would you concur with that Benita?
4: Well, I think there's, uh, so I work primarily with um, African-American nonprofits across the country and they're much smaller between um, 10 and 25 employees, some really large ones. But for the most part, they all have strategic plans because I've worked with them for years, but <laughs> I have been working with them to shift now to putting together a a one-year plan or a um, sort of business continuity plan but with it embedded within that is that we have to have a couple things we have to have a crisis management plan as Gregory said we have to have a crisis communications plan and we also need to um, do some dig deeping in terms of financial to see what's in the reserves and map out how long they can keep the doors open and make payroll and then also part of that crisis communication plan is talking to our funders and our foundations and sort of setting more realistic goals in terms of what the deliverables we committed to doing and, and if they can be achieved or not.
1: So without getting too much into the weeds, I wanted to just pick up on uh, your work with uh, African-American organizations. The the general statistics, I don't know what it's like specifically in Atlanta, but a disproportionate impact on uh, African-American communities of color, uh, black and brown communities for COVID-19. How is that affecting the crisis or the uh, the crisis planning or the business continuity planning with the organizations you're working with? I know Earl's going to comment on this in just a moment.
4: Well, so you all know we have a governor here that um, opened up the state um, as of last Friday. And so... Um, What I wind up doing with every executive director I've worked with across the state, which is about 50 nonprofits is reaching out to them on Wednesday or Thursday last week and basically um, imploring them not to open back up Um, and presented a lot of data um, in terms of the infection rates and the deaths and the disproportionality in the African American community. So they have all committed to continuing to work remotely, but they've had to shift their resources, as folks have said here, to um, get on the front lines and offer those resources where they're most needed to protect our community. So it has shifted the work that they're doing. A lot of them were doing um, ramping up and doing voter registration work. Um, which, of course, is nonpartisan, our get-out-to-vote ap- effort for uh, the presidential elections. Um, but they've had to shift that um, entirely. So um, we're just sort of doing what we can, and luckily the foundations are really responsive to that, and we've come up with some innovative ways to hit numbers.
1: Thank you. Uh, Earl, do you want to pick up on that and let us know what it's like for the university settlement in Cleveland?
4: Sure. Um, just, just an
7: overview for folks in Unlocked. University Settlements Settlement serves literally one of the poorest districts in the state and probably one of the poorest districts in the country. And the community itself is about 22,000 people. We serve about 12,000 of them in the year. So when COVID hit, we were really challenged to, to do some really kind of basic stuff. At the same time, we were, had been thinking about doing a strategic plan. So t- to answer your question, I'll answer your question in a couple ways. I'm on two boards. One of them started a st- strategic planning process last fall. We've suspended that um, because there's just too many uncertainties. The other board, we were approaching strategic planning, but we decided instead to just focus on fundraising because at the current rate, we stand to lose about a million dollars over the next six months. For university settlement, it's been, um, I think Julie knows this and others know this, we shifted from a social service agency to a relief agency awfully quickly. And a relief agency is a really different sort of dynamic. So it makes it really complicated to do strategic planning. I think there's lots of planning to do, but it's hard to do strategic planning. And the two variables that that remain unanswered for me before we can do strategic planning, one is, to quote Dr. Fauci, what is the virus telling us? Um, And to really listen deeply to what the virus is telling us, not just in America, but in specific communities and for specific Um, And that just makes so much sense to me because we'd be listening to the environment anyway if we were doing strategic planning. Um, So we should be doing that in this case. The other challenge is from a strategy point of view, I think a number of us across the country have begun saying, this is not a time to return to normal. This is a time to return to better. And if we return to better, what does that say about policy and advocacy? As a friend pointed out to me the other day. Um, I was talking through something with this friend, and I was talking through a campaign we wanted to do. And he said, "Who's your target audience?" And, and um, I said, "Mainly philanthropy." And he pointed out that philanthropy is about one percent of the money that's available. Ninety-nine percent of the money is in Washington. So when we think about strategy, um, it's not just it's not just how to how to protect our organization or our role in the community. It's really thinking about how do we do this so that we don't return to normal, and how do we focus our activities on the place where change is most urgent, which are the big issues that we're facing. Somebody said, I can't remember who said it well, it might have been Greg. Um, It's a cynical phrase, never waste a crisis. But there are opportunities here to advance some big agendas that are really important to us, and everybody here has been struggling with for a long time. So as we think about strategy, it's really important to think about the big issues and how do we turn the better around?
1: Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's, I think it's clear that the crisis has exposed uh, some structural inequities and insecurities within our institutions and our, and our communities that we're now trying to address. It's just shifting the focus uh, and looking forward to ideally a, a new better how does that change the way we think about board recruitment? Uh, Julie, can you, can you uh, kick off on, on that question in terms of recruitment to, for new board members?
5: Sure. I think that board recruitment is more important than ever. We need to be really intentional about how we are growing our board, how we are enhancing our governance practices. It's not just bring on everybody and anybody. We really need to be thinking about who are, you know, what are the skills? What are the relationships? What are the perspectives that are gonna help us get to, as Earl said, that, that new better? It's not a time to sit back and say, let's wait till this all blows over and then we'll start recruiting. We, now is the time. And, you know, we, as I said, we work with the business community here in Northeast Ohio. They are looking for a way to contribute. They're looking for a way to help and and there are many others out in the community you know and, and and country doing so as well, and this is a an opportunity to say, "Hey, this is what's going on. we need you more than ever." and here's why here's what's going on, or here's what you bring to the table."
1: and do you see a shift in that source of potential board members in their their thinking about the nature of their contribution or are they still thinking of it in a in a pretty conventional way where's 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 that conversation fitting you think or is it still developing
5: people are certainly not thinking joining a board is a walk in the park they're really thinking you know this is heavy duty serious business and i think people are taking it much more seriously but also really recognizing because we're now seeing, you know, the lines at the food bank, you know, the backpacks of food that Earl's organization is putting together. People are seeing the impact and knowing that if if they don't help and somebody doesn't help, these organizations aren't going to be here.
1: Right. Uh, Benita, what's it like uh, for the 50 organizations that you are uh, advising in terms of the, any churn in their board or some uh some uh new ideas and and new faces coming on board
4: so yeah the the goal is always to get more business partners to um support and get buy-in on the work that grassroots organizations are doing across the community because it is in fact their community and it's the people that they serve as well. So that's always a push. One of the sort of systemic things I work on with many clients um, is processes. And so oftentimes nonprofit organizations don't have a good process for the recruitment, screening, nominations and onboarding of new board members. So that's a process I work on with all my clients. But specifically, board members need to know when they're being candidates, when they're being recruited and vetted, what they're getting into, what the time commitment is, what the what the the giving requirement is. Um how many hours of a month it's going to take from them and what their expertise brings to the table and so that needs to be done early on through a needs assessment before you even start the board recruitment and nominations process you need to look at your bylaws you need to look at your articles of incorporation you need to figure out what all those details are put together a volunteer board job description so people know you know what they're coming into and you need to get people who Whose values are just as aligned as the organizations and the mission, and it could be it could be someone who doesn 't um, have the same politics, but as long as your values are aligned and you feel um, that the organization speaks to your heart and what you want to do in the world, you got a good partner you got a good board member, and we need more of those from the business community and some oh, I love that. Have had
1: go su- ahead sorry I didn't, I didn't some kinds have that.
4: had success in recruiting um business partners, but it's mostly been sort of, you know, people we know and love who care about the word. but we do <laughs> right. need more business players.
1: So. Well, what what I was going to say there, and what, what I love is I was going to move on to a second uh, uh, question around the impact on, on our onboarding with board members, but you've already mentioned it. Okay. I think what you're saying, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that As we start to think about recruitment and bringing in new faces and new voices, we need to make sure that the subsequent steps for onboarding are solid, that we have a very clear plan, that it's a good opportunity to refresh those bylaws and, and so on and so forth. So you can't really separate recruitment and onboarding because successful onboarding and recruitment go hand in hand. Is that is that a is that a fair statement?
4: Absolutely, and you show, need you need to recruit. nothing from
1: the panel, which makes <laughs> me feel good.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and you need to recruit based on the skill um, gaps you have in your board. So,
1: right, Gregory, do you want to add add to that and how you guys, how you advise on recruitment and onboarding? So we'll bring those two ideas together.
6: Sure, sure. I, 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 you know, I think if there ever was a time that um, we need to really be intentional in terms of our board recruitment around diversity and inclusion, now is that time. And so while you know a lot of the stuff that we talk about in terms of the basics, your articles on corporation, your bylaws, all those things are really important. Um, um, but I think diversity and inclusion, especially having women at the table um, and having more diversity at the table, not just a seat at the table, but a voice at the table too. I think it just um, invigorates your board where you get that diversity of thinking um, and that diversity of thought process and thought leadership, I think is really important. And so, um, so I see shifts that are happening. I serve on three boards myself and I, and I have a board of directors, um, um, but, but I'm starting to see shifts in terms of how we go about recruitment. And I really believe that, you know, the days of this just being a cute little charity, mm-hmm. and we just recruit our friends to be on the board, those days are over. And we really have to professionalize uh, our process um, and who comes onto the board. And the relationship between the board, and the nominating committee, um, and, and the CEO, and the recruitment process, those two things are really, really vital and important. Sometimes boards bring people onto the board and they never meet the CEO. Um, right. and, and, and I think that's a mistake. So, so I think, you know, that partnership has to be tied together really closely. Diversity and inclusion has to be, again, not just a seat at the table, but a voice at the table too. And we're seeing a shift where we have millennials who are now starting to make their own money. They're entrepreneurs. They are, um, uh, it's new money coming on board and we have to pay attention to that. And they're innovative, and we need those voices at the table as well.
1: I'm going to come to uh, Leslie and then Earl to, uh, to, to uh, put you on the spot with some absolute must-dos in terms of recruitment and, and onboarding. But I wanted to give Benita a chance to jump in because she was waving her hand there. So while she's speaking, you guys think of the absolute must-dos, and I'll be with you in just a second.
4: Benita? I just wanted to mention that it's really important, um, as Greg mentioned, that board members have a true connection with the executive director or the CEO of any nonprofit. Because that is sort of the true spokesperson, the person who really sort of lives and breathes the organization's mission and work. And right now, during COVID-19, it is a wonderful opportunity for very um, um, well positioned board of directors in the community to act as spokespersons on behalf of the organization to garner more support. So it really is an opportunity for board leaders to step up and start um, doing some fundraising.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you for that. That's useful. Leslie, uh, what were you, what in your ad, uh, advice to uh, boards that you consult with are you insisting upon uh, as, as must-dos for uh, a- recruitment and or onboarding?
3: Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I typically um, advise my clients is actually to, you know, a lot of boards have their matrix of skills and, you know, here's what what we need and here's the demographics and all that. And I think that's great. But to actually sit down and come up with a a little mini strategic plan for your board recruitment, think about what your needs are, what um, roles each board member is filling and how that aligns with your strategic plan in the future and what your goals are and making sure that you have the right expertise and the right voices around the table. So um, just went through an exercise with a client where we actually mapped out for the next um, five years, all the board members that are rolling off what skills um, will be needed. And that way those gaps can be identified and you can start cultivating those relationships with those potential board members. Mm -hmm. Um, I always advise that, you know, you can, put a non-board member on a committee as a way to start to acclimate them to the organization and for them to kind of dip the, their toe in the water of your organization, if you will. So I think it's just really intentional and being strategic about it. Um, there's a lot of people that want to serve on boards sometimes, but maybe don't really know what that under, what that means or what they're taking on and are committing to. Um, so having the time to really, really recruit and vet those candidates is most important. And then I think once you, have identified those candidates, and you begin your active recruitment process, I think the number one thing is transparency. I mean, I think you have to be fully transparent with a board member, a potential board member, before they agree to sign the board. of I think it was Benita that mentioned what they're getting into. How many hours a month is this going to require of their time? What, what are the fundraising requirements? What other expectations could they be um, expecting as they join your board? So, I think transparency is really key, and then having that Um, orientation, be strong, you know, immersing them in your organization and your programming and your culture and, and letting them have a taste of everything so they can truly make informed decisions about your organization, because otherwise you can't. I mean, you have to really understand the inner workings of something to make good informed decisions at a governance
1: level. Excellent. So again, reiterating what Gregory mentioned about professionalizing the whole approach, uh, you mentioned being transparent, being immersive, and I also liked what you mentioned uh, earlier about thinking of it in terms of succession planning for the board, which is something we we sometimes skip over. Uh, Earl, what what would you say some must-dos are if you've got any any to add?
7: Sure, sure. Just well, ditto to what everyone else said, but only add a couple of small things. Um, um, I appreciate that Greg brought up the point about building diverse boards, because I think now is the time to do it. It's a long past time to do it. And I think one of the things that we can all do, I, I won't serve on a board anymore um, unless there is a clear commitment from the executive director and the entire board to maintaining a certain level of diversity. And when I say diversity, I don't just mean white people and black people and brown people. I mean LGBT folks, I mean women, I mean um, so, one of the things that will change those boards, if we all say, um, let me know when your board is diverse and I'll come back on. Um, so, that's one thing. But a couple things right now that I think are important. None of us could have predicted that we would need skills in this environment that we need now. The other day, I was trying to locate some bleach. And I found a factory in Illinois that would sell me 2,000 gallons of bleach. And and it made me think about how often lately I've been solving supply chain problems and that I would love to have somebody on my board who knows about logistics and supply chains. Just an emerging thing that none of us could have predicted, but now that it's here, it's probably going to be around for a while. The other thing that I think we could all, I'm really grateful right now that we have on our board, um, the person who is the doctor who is staffing the COVID hotline, at um, Metro Health Systems, which is our county public hospital here in Cleveland. Um, because having uh, frontline COVID medical expertise on our board has been so important in sort of thinking through strategies about opening, what's OK, what's not OK, rather than trying to rely on this press conference or this health department or so on. So those are just like two issues. I'd be, I'd be looking for the logistics and supply chain people I'd be looking for medical expertise, and I'd be insisting if I were um, about to join the board, um, get you know get to some level of diversity,
1: and then we can talk about that. So I think this is interesting because in previous discussions on nonprofit problem solver, we've spoken about uh, programs and services shifting, being consistent with the mission. But as we uh, consolidate and shift, what nonprofits are expected to do in serving their communities we may be doing slightly different things to deliver our mission. And what you mentioned, Earl, which I think a lot of people are, are going to face over the next few months is uh, a, a, an important uh, change in your, in the way that you deliver your mission going, as you said, from social services to relief. Now, take a step back. Would a relief organization possibly need somebody on supply chain? You might've thought of that if you really had, you know, your your weekend away day doing your, your board strategy, but it didn't really expose itself or surface until this crisis made it critical in a relief organization. So again, I think as we move forward in delivering our missions in slightly different ways and to leslie's point about that succession planning being open-minded about the way our programs and services may shift and what skills that may require in our boards and our governance that we don't currently have anyone want to jump in on that or just summarized
6: i'll i'll, I'll, I'll jump in Kev. i you know and i think carol is you know absolutely right i mean if if you know, when, when 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 new board members come on board, sometimes they come in shy and don't want to rub things the wrong way. They're trying to figure things out, and um, I always advise people: um, Do you want to help change lives or not? Which is why you came on the board in the first place. And if you if you if you came on the board because you want to help change lives, and we need your talent, and your time, and your treasure, and so I would advise you know new board members coming on in terms of must-dos to jump in and invest immediately, like make an impact on me, make your commitment, whether it's volunteering, whether it's writing a, a $5 check, whatever that is, I think is important for new board members to, to jump in immediately. And I think it's important for board members to accept that new leadership that's on board because it's the only way you're going to begin to stir up the pot and stir up um, the innovation that we're talking about we all, you know, I'm running an you know, organization and, and, and we're pretty significant. I have 120 staff members, you know, we have, we, we have several programs, but we're thinking about COVID, post COVID-19 and how our agency is gonna be different and how my board is gonna be different. We're meeting on Zoom and all, all those things like everyone else, but we're learning some things about our organization, about our board, about our talent um, that 's pushing us and, and so we 're going to be i think Earl talked about it not not the new normal, but a better you know we 're going to be a better organization after this is over than than it was before um, but you need when you talk about the board 's engagement and involvement, you need that innovation jump in with a sense of urgency because we need that talent and treasure immediately with with the sense of urgency so'
1: it 's interesting in terms of jumping in straight away. I want to uh, pick up a, a question. Uh, from uh, Debbie Pence Meyerberg, who's mentioned this in the chat, uh, around um, the the board in some cases being uh, checked out. So I've unmuted you, Debbie. If you want to ask the panel your question uh, directly, go ahead.
2: Sure. I mean, overall, I think my board's pretty decent, but I just feel like they've checked out during this period. Uh, we're a small nonprofit. We're not. necessarily considered vital. We do after-school programming mainly in schools that obviously is not happening right now, so we're doing a lot of virtual programming, but I mean you know i send out emails almost nothing's going on i feel like you know all committees have basically stopped meeting and i've been so busy normally i'm you know prompting hey it's time to set that meeting da da, da. and i feel like unless i'm kind of prompting no one's doing anything right now and i'm so busy trying you know doing ppp loans and that kind of thing that um, it's hard to focus on the board um, so i just didn't know if you guys had any suggestions for not only kind of trying to get them re-engaged because I'm starting to think like we all are of that longer term planning, the scenario planning, um, but also we start our new fiscal year um, 9-1, so we normally onboard new members in August and there's like no one on, you know, being set up to be considered at this point.
7: First of all, I have to say, um, when you say, I know Deb and I know her organization, you are absolutely essential, so don't cut yourself short there. Um, I I, I so appreciate you asking the question because it it made me think about what's going on in my board president and my board vice president, everybody, and you're absolutely right. Everybody's having a really tough time. It's hard for me to get a hold of my board president right now because, you know, he's in charge of of, of stuff for two continents or something like that. So there's that. The other thing that I think we have to acknowledge and that we're probably not acknowledging enough in the nonprofit sector, um, Julie might have some insight about this, is this is gonna go on for a long time, Um, like probably a five to 10 year cycle of completely coming out of it. So the challenges that we're having now are gonna be really big challenges. The only thing that I've been able to do to keep my board engaged in this Short term is we do a five o'clock update call every Friday where all board members call in. And I usually get like 90 percent attendance and I and I promise them and I literally do keep it to 20 minutes. So so I come up, I, I write something out and I read it to them just so that they know what's happening. I'm not asking them to do much because they've got sort of a lot on their plates right now. But I, but I do, like you, I want them just to be up to speed so that if they're out in the community and somebody says, hey, I saw that university someone got a big they're not saying, I don't know anything about that. I, I, I sort of think we have to get through this. For me, I have to get through this, and then I figure out how to re-engage them come June and July.
1: Benita?
4: Yeah, I think that um, this is a particularly difficult time. Uh, people may um, be experiencing sort of fatigue, um, and particularly our our members of our boards of directors. But this is a good opportunity as people who lead nonprofits to take a step back and look at our board roster and see how long people have been on the board and maybe they need to be transitioned off. Maybe some young folks, some some millennials, some um, newly wealthy entrepreneurs, some business partners could now be um, vetted and and brought into the process, and it may take six months to get them there, but um, having a new perspective is really really vital. Some people have been on boards, some boards I I work with for 30 years, and the bylaws say seven. So one of my charges is to always help them uh, move into the next sort of recruitment process and transition folks off to comply with their bylaws. The other piece, Debbie, is um, Sometimes some boards need sort of to be handheld, um, and oftentimes the executive director CEO does not have the time um, or the bandwidth to do that. And sometimes that means bringing in a board coach to sort of bring them along the way.
1: Okay, uh, Julie. Yeah, you're. You're. I'm coming to you next, and I'm going to. I'm going to use your answer to pivot into the next question too. So. Oh boy.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
5: Uh, Earl, I really really like that idea of the five o'clock call. Debbie, one of the things that I know that we're certainly experiencing and probably all of you are too is just the overload of communication, emails, information about webinars, and your messages may be getting lost in the shuffle. You know that's it's possible and as Vanita said, you know everybody's you know we're all dealing with lots of things and um, and so I think You know, if there's a way that you can make that specific call out, you know, let's do a every other week call or something. Uh, I'm on the board of a small private school. My son also attends that school. And that's one of the things that we plan to do with our community members. It's let's have a call with our head of school. You're all welcome to join. We just want to give you quick updates. It's great to have this face-to-face when we can't have it in any other way. And also if there's something that a board member can help with, you know, call that out and make a very specific request. It's so hard. I think sometimes when we say, as a board member, I say, let me know what I can help with. And it's overwhelming to even think, I don't, I need help with everything. I don't even know what. So if you're able to say, gosh, Julie, here's something I need help with this very specific item, then people will raise their hands and do it and step up. And if so, they don't, then that's also an opportunity to say, you know, maybe it's
1: time to, to move on. So two specific <laughs> things there in terms of cutting through all the the noise and the overwhelm with communication now. One is uh, having a set cadence so every uh, every Friday, five p m for twenty minutes, so everybody knows exactly what to expect. They don't need to look at emails on Wednesday because they're going to have the call at five o'clock on. On, on Friday. So it gives people an opportunity to navigate that. And the second is when there's a specific ask, make it uh, and give people some, some really clear indications of what what you need from them. So is that is that helpful? Debbie, did you want to come back on that at all?
2: No, that's really helpful. Thank you, everyone. Okay. If I Great. could just quickly
4: uh, add to that, Kev, I'd just certainly. say in the interim, executive directors and CEOs still need to continue to do what they normally would do, which would be providing their, their monthly or their quarterly uh, reports to their, their board of directors, making sure f- those financial statements get to the board. They need to still sort of st- stay the course in their um, leadership role.
1: So certain elements of the day job are non-negotiable despite what's going on. Yeah, and that's and that's part of the governance role. Julie, what I wanted to ask you next was, uh partly related to debbie's question about uh boards being actively involved or ch- or checked in and and previous our conversation was around setting the expectations properly during recruitment and onboarding i just want to review very quickly uh How you advise people about the distinction between serving on a corporate board versus serving on a nonprofit board and and particularly at this time, everybody, profit or for profit or all of us are coping with this overwhelm and the current situation. But how is it different for people on these two different types of board?
5: so i don't have a lot of experience with corporate boards other than other than to to know that their responsibility they're beholden to the shareholders and nonprofit board members are beholden to the mission and vitality of the organization you know it is it is you know the buck stops with the board you know the success or failure of this organization rests with the board not with the chief executives but it really it really lies with the board and so holding true to mission and as um, benita said you know, making sure that you're aware of what's going on with the finances. If you're not a finance person, you can't just say, oh, I didn't know what was going on. It's your responsibility to learn it, have somebody guide you if you need help with that. But you need to understand the finances. You need to participate in fundraising. You need to support the chief executive and, you know, be there, you know, with open doors, open ears to to help advance the mission of that organization and serve as an ambassador in all the ways, you know, what that means, whether it is, you know, asking folks to financially support the organization, telling those stories, um, you know, participating with, you know, foundation site visits and and calls, that that's your charge is to to do what you can to support this organization and ensure that the the mission continues and that the direction of the organization is set.
1: Leslie, do you find, and I'll come on to you next, Gregory, Leslie, do you find that people have, uh, confusion or doubts about the distinction between serving on a corporate board versus a, a nonprofit board, and the board support that you provide.
3: Yeah, I think mean, I've seen some of that. Where I think you know, successful people who are you know leaders in their companies and maybe serving on corporate boards, and then they get asked to serve on a nonprofit board, and maybe they don't really understand the nuances and the differences that that um, a nonprofit board has. I mean, I agree with. Julie on the, you know, it's all about stakeholders, not shareholders. I mean, it's all, it's your whole community that you're serving. Um, So yeah, I mean, there's also the resources in a a large company and, you know, usually then a corporate board may be a little bit more hands off where there's a full team that's devoted to, you know, whatever issue that that organization is facing and they trust that the staff is handling that. Whereas on a nonprofit board, very likely you 're pretty lean at your in your staffing model, so you don't have the depth there to fully um, vet ideas and work through things. so your job as a board member on a nonprofit may be a little may shift over into operations occasionally to really help um, augment staff capacity. Um, so I think that's something to be mindful of when you join a nonprofit board that maybe it's not going to be as um, hands off as a corporate board might be. I mean, that's a,
1: that's an important point, and and in fact, the next question, which I'm going to ask Bernita to kick off with, but before that, Gregory, uh, any any point on that distinction between corporate and nonprofit boards?
6: Well, you know, this, you know, there's obviously the, the distinction that for-profit corporations, you know, you get paid. The, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's about the um, investment. It's about the bottom line. But I, I think the stakes are just, uh, being on any board is, is a high stake game, right? And, and so whether, whether it's for-profit or whether it's non-profit, the fiduciary responsibilities are still at a high level. You still, when you sign on, when you sign a contract, and we don't have contracts, but in reality you do, when you sign on to be in, on any board, you, you're personally liable as well as the organization's liable. So it's a high stake game. And so I think you know um, um the for, the fiduciary responsibilities are very similar, so versus talking about what the differences are um um I think it's important to talk about what the what the similarities are um because whether you have stakeholders, I'm um, in the community, um, you're looking at the bottom line, you're running a business still, you still got to deal with taxes contracts h r California, you know in California. Our employment law changes every every hour. Um, and so all, all those things um, about risk mitigation is important. Partnership with the CEO is important. Succession planning, whether for-profit, nonprofit, all those things for me are all very, very, very similar. Um, business continuity, especially right now. Um, um, Disneyland is right here in Orange County. Disneyland is talking about closing until January. I'm sure their board is talking every day about when do they go back to business continuity. I have nonprofit partners who are also close. They're having the same conversations. And so I think there's a lot, there's more similarities than differences when we talk about those two types of boards.
1: That, that's interesting. And I, and I think that's an important point. So thank you for making that. What Leslie, though, mentioned, uh, it, it leads into our next question. Benita, I'm going to ask you to kick this one off, which is, uh, at what point, when you are a bit more hands-on in that nonprofit board, uh, how do what point does does governance shift to execution? Where do we draw that line between governance and execution, and how should uh, we be thinking about that in terms of advising boards or advising executive directors to to get that line correct for uh, their organization?
4: So, I do not encourage my clients to cross that line. It's a very slippery slope. Um, board members need to know coming in that they are really the check and balance of the organization. They have a fiduciary duty. They need to ensure that the organization remains incorporated, um, remains financially sound, et cetera. It creates intense confusion when board members start to come into the office or site and start asking of things of the staff and requesting things to get done. Um, I I don't encourage that. (laughs) So uh, that's the advice I give all of the executive directors that I work with. Now, there's some places in which board members can be incredibly helpful um, if they wanna roll up their sleeves and in that capacity, that's the fundraising. And so that is the way in which I encourage that and help the executive director partner with board members who want to sort of get more deeply involved.
1: Julie, what would you recommend in that regard?
5: I think that's a an absolute great point. You know, we you hear the nightmare stories of, you know, the board chair having an office at the organization and, you know, cell phone numbers of, you know, staff that they are calling over the weekend and asking to to do things without chief executive or senior leadership being aware and you You absolutely don't want that. If a board member also wants to serve as a volunteer, that's great. It's a distinct hat that you're putting on. You know, if you want to serve meals at the soup kitchen or pack food boxes, that's great. But you're doing that in a in a distinct role and keeping those lines clear is really important.
1: So that's one thing I was going to uh, come on to, and I'm glad you mentioned it, which is uh, board member versus volunteer because we we understand that volunteers are 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 really a, a pay category as opposed to a job category. So volunteers are, are are active members of staff and again, need to be recruited and onboarded and trained and supported in the same way as, as paid staff. But if board members are volunteers in that regard, then they are straddling that execution governance and it becomes difficult. But what you're saying, Julie, is make that distinction really clear. So you have a board member style volunteering, which is not execution; it's governance, and then you have a different style of of volunteering, which you you make that explicit step. Does that does that hold true in Leslie in your advice to to clients? Absolutely. Board members. Oh you're, you're in and out there, Leslie.
4: So while she's um, fixing that, I can just add very quickly you, that Tammy. that power dynamic shows thought. up. In that board president's volunteer role as packing food bags, let me tell you. And so it's still quite confusing for the staff, and it's quite frustrating. So it has to be handled really well.
1: And do you have examples of, of or recommendations about
4: how to handle that well? I just don't encourage it, quite frankly.
1: <laughs> don't don't, don't cross that line, Gregory. What what about in your situation? You said you mentioned you you sit on a number of different boards. You have extensive board experience. Tell us about. Uh, how you've managed that distinction between governance and execution?
6: Well, I think coming in, it's it's really being clear on what those roles are. So, you know, I don't take a job if the board is more operational than governance, because um, the board has one employee. And they got, I mean, one, I have 120 employees, they belong to me. But the board has one employee, and that's me. And so I try to be real clear, and I guess I'm bold enough to remind the board when they do cross the line, um, <laughs> without fear. Um, but I'm 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 in my right to do so, and so I, I think it's important to always remind the board. Um, and I have a board chair that we we are really good partners. And so mm-hmm. when I have a when I have a board member who does cross the line or they're difficult, I I know I can text her at night at ten o'clock at night or seven o'clock in the morning, or we talk all the time. Where I know and and she'll she handles the board part of it, so I think that relationship is important. And and one of the reasons why I I, I mention that is because if the relationship between the board and the CEO does not work because there's, there's this is crossing on the line, nothing else works. And so it's really important for that relationship to. I mean, we have to be. I mean, we're married. We gotta we gotta walk that walk the the entire time, and that's really you know, really, really really important. And I make it clear, I'm the CEO and I make it clear that this is not certain decisions I this is I'm informing you and then other decisions, I need your vote. And so I try to be so it's up to me to kind of navigate that and manage that. But it's 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 a hard, it's a thin as Benita said, it's it's a slippery slope, it's a thin line. Um but you gotta really, really manage it well. And then after a while you create a culture. And after a while, you know, um People, you, you teach people how you want to be treated. So I, I, I teach my board, and I don't mean that in a negative way because I still report to the board. But I teach them how to treat me as a CEO. And I say this, and then I shut up because I can talk about this subject all day. <laughs> um, we we don't we don't talk about this often, but it's so important. You know? and, and because I still run a board and I'm I'm a, I'm a CEO, support and edification of of the CEO in front of other people goes a 1,000 miles. I never had to brag about myself in front of my staff because my board chair does it. My board does it. Guess what? They don't have to brag about themselves in front of me because I do it. Right. And so, but, but, but it shows that relationship, that support, that we got one another's back. That's another way of how I manage it so that when, when there is something difficult, I can say, hey, hold up. That's not your decision.
1: Yeah, excellent. Julie, you wanted to come in there?
5: I did. I just wanted to piggyback on what Gregory said about the board chair and chief executive relationship. And that if there are concerns about board members not upholding their responsibilities or crossing a line, that it's not the CEO's job to manage that. At the head of the care and feeding of the board, that board chair really needs to help help you be your partner you can bring concerns to them and then let them you know, kind of work that or through a governance or board development committee. <clears throat> Excuse me, you don't wanna get into that push pull where as you said, like I report to them. So you, know, you wanna have a, a good partnership and that board chair chief executive relationship can make or break an organization. And
1: so when we're looking at succession planning for the board chair and and other officer roles in the board, that's going to again be part of that recruitment and onboarding uh, of those roles to make sure that the expectations are really clear.
5: And and if I can just jump in again, because like Gregory, I can talk about this all day too. You don't want to be waiting until that board chair's term is up and they're walking out the door till you start thinking about who the next board chair is going to be. You want to be thinking two people ahead so that you can groom them, you can partner with them, you can build and deepen that relationship so you're ready to go.
1: Right, excellent, okay. So we have just a couple of uh, minutes open to some questions from the chat. While we're doing that, uh, I'm just curious to to know, uh, going full circle from where we started, what what does a a strategic plan look like anymore? (laughs) Uh, Have you you got one, uh, Gregory, that you can that you can rely on, or is it, or is really the focus just on that business continuity plan over say the next quarter?
6: It, it's it's a combination of both. I I I I I swear by. You can't just go in crisis mode and forget about the rest of the you know your organization and future organization. I think you have to do both. So one of the ways we manage it is um, we the strategic plan that we also break down to our annual plan. That annual plan is on, our, is on every agenda. And if, you, if there's an agenda item that does not connect to the annual plan that then connects to the strategic plan, we, I question, why is this on the agenda? And, and so it's so live and fluid. It's part of the board agenda. Um, when, when I get off this call, I'm jumping right onto my executive leadership call. It's on that agenda. Um, we have a, we're doing a virtual town hall with our entire organization on Friday. Guess what? It's on that agenda. So, right. so it's part of the DNA of the organization. That's how you keep it fluid. Um, and so that's how we're managing it. And so what it looks like is it's it's part of our DNA. It's all we talk about It's the talking points. So every board member knows these are the four talking points and those four talking points are all about the strategic plan. Uh, my assistant knows the strategic plan because it's on every agenda. So if you ask her, she knows these are the talking points about the organization. And so I said, the more and more you keep it alive and have it part of your your conversation, I think uh, that for me, that's what it looks like, feels like, and this is what we're doing, even though we're in the midst of crisis.
1: Uh, Benita, you've got you got something to say there too.
4: I just wanted to add, and you know, I echo everything Gregory just said. But a strategic plan is really a living, breathing document that um, shapes and grows and shifts as the organization gets its work done and as factors that are external impact the organization, such as COVID-19. So it has to be fluid. It has to, it has to work for the organization.
1: That's what I was hoping to get to. Uh, I've, I've, I've often thought of a strategic plan as more of an intangible thing that lives in the hearts and minds of the, of the staff as, and, and whilst it's documented uh, and updated, it really has to have that uh, sort of ethereal feel that people can articulate it in different ways in their own voices uh leslie did you want to say any, any final comments about the what a strategic plan is is like in in this particular situation uh or are we really just focusing on our uh current business continuity
3: yeah and sorry i my internet crashed here so i was gone for a minute or so um, i'm back you, you know i think there's a huge focus on continuity right now of course um but I think to think strategically is, is important all the time. And that sometimes in times like this where your um, innovation can come out, because it has to, is really a good time to think about strategies for the future and really utilize this time. If you know maybe some of your programming has slowed down, it may be buying you a little bit more time right now to focus on some things that otherwise get, um, can gets kicked down the road because we don't have time. Um, so I, I think it's, it still needs to be an important focus, but um, you know, not at the expense of um, other resources right now, which I know can be a huge issue um, for some organizations. It's expensive to hire someone to come and do that, and maybe that's not the right way to use resources right now, but do whatever you can as an organization and as a board and team together to try to work on those things in the interim.
1: That's excellent way to uh, conclude this afternoon's episode of Nonprofit Problem Solver. Always be strategic. <laughs> so thank you uh, to everyone who was uh, able to join us. Thank you to the uh, panel. And we will see you uh, what, next Wednesday at 1 on Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. And apologies for any reduction in sound quality during the recording. Special thanks to this week's panel. We had Leslie Spathman, Gregory Scott, Julie Clark, Benita Stanley and Earl Pike. Thanks also to Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio for producing the episode.
0: You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.